any time that a tragedy occurs in our society, immediately afterwards, it seems like every politician and celebrity wants to get in front of a microphone or go on social media to offer their thoughts and prayers about the situation. This has become so commonplace that now, among younger generations, the very phrase, thoughts and prayers, has become a joke. One famous source on the internet defines this phrase, thoughts and prayers, as an expression of indifference to tragedy to seem empathetic, a hollow gesture trivializing loss. And frankly and unfortunately, I think we could probably understand why so many people in our society today see prayer as a hollow trivializing gesture of indifference when the most public expressions of prayer that our society sees come from the lips of obviously insincere people trying to capitalize on tragedy. But in contrast to that terribly low view of prayer that is so prevalent in our society today, the Bible tells us that prayer is an extremely meaningful and important part uh, of the Christian life for believers in Jesus. It's a practice that frequently characterized the life of Jesus. It's a practice the Apostle Paul says Jesus' disciples are to engage in without ceasing. And so prayer matters. And this morning we're going to talk about prayer. We'll talk a little bit about what prayer is, but mainly what we're going to do today is talk about how we should pray and what we should pray for. And we're going to talk about these things as we continue our look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, today we come to what is probably the most famous passage on prayer in the entire Bible. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 15, which contains the model of prayer that is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew 6, and as you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context for our passage. We're in a section of this sermon in which Jesus is talking about what he calls practicing our righteousness, according to chapter 6, verse 1. He's talking about basically the performance of good deeds which are of a spiritual nature. And in this section, Jesus gives a warning about the motives that must stand behind our performance of these sorts of deeds. And Jesus then applied his general warning to three specific types of good deeds that were commonly practiced in first century Judaism. Giving money to the poor, of fasting, and prayer. And Jesus said, when believers practice their righteousness in these sorts of areas, or perhaps in other areas, with God-honoring motives, they gain eternal rewards. But when believers perform these same deeds with improper motivations, the eternal rewards that these sorts of deeds would have otherwise produced are forfeited. That's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So if you practice your righteousness, that is if you fast or you give money to the poor or you pray, not out of a sincere desire to worship God or to serve and please Him, but instead out of a desire to impress people, to be lauded as holy and righteous, Jesus says the only reward you're ever going to get for that is the applause of people. You're not going to get anything from God. And that's what we saw last time. And we finished up last time in the middle of a section in which Jesus was talking about prayer. And we saw what Jesus had to say there about drawing public attention to our prayers 
But now as we pick up this morning, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about the actual content of our prayers in verses 7 through 15. And this morning we're going to see just two points. First, by far the shorter point, we'll see how we should not pray. And then second, we'll see how we should pray. So let's start with our first point in which Jesus tells us how not to pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Jesus has previously warned just a few verses earlier against praying like the hypocritical Pharisees who prayed as a performance to gain the approval of people. But now Jesus warns his disciples against another form of unacceptable prayer, praying like the Gentiles. Now in that day and age, to be a Gentile was to be an unbeliever, to be a pagan, to be an idolater. And when the pagans prayed, they were not putting on a performance to please people. They were usually putting on a performance, hoping to be answered by their gods. If you need an example of this, think of 1 Kings 18, remember at Mount Carmel, where Elijah faces off with the prophets of Baal. And what do they do? They call on their idol for hours, and they wear themselves out, and eventually they start engaging in self-mutilation, hoping that all of this nonsense will get a reply from their idol. But their prayers failed, didn't they? Because prayer is meaningless if it is not offered to the living God. But Jesus here tells us, don't pray like the pagans pray. Well, what does he mean? Well, the first thing Jesus specifies is he does not want his disciples using prayer techniques that idolaters utilized. Jesus describes his concern here using a Greek verb, which the ESV translators render as heaping up empty phrases. What exactly does this mean? Well, the truth is we're not exactly sure because this verb is extremely rare in Greek literature. So it's tough to pinpoint exactly what sort of practice he's talking about. This verb seems to be related to the Greek word that means to stutter. And from this connection, many interpreters think what Jesus is warning against is speaking the same words over and over, what the King James Version calls vain repetition. And this is an approach to prayer in which people basically mindlessly repeat certain phrases or prayers. And you know, if you look at the history of religions, what you'll find is that, in fact, many religions have commanded people to pray like this throughout history. And this is even true in our own time. Millions of Hindus today will regularly chant mantras that are, those are melodic-sounding phrases that may or may not have cognitive meaning. And they will chant these dozens if not hundreds, if not thousands of times. Similarly, millions of Buddhists today will repeat the name of certain Buddhas thousands of times a day, believing that this gives them supernatural uh, help in life and guarantees them a place in the pure land when they die. Muslims pray several times a day, going through a fixed set of physical movements and reciting fixed prayers for memory. And millions of Catholics pray the rosary, don't they? Chanting numerous sequences of the Lord's Prayer, followed by ten Hail Marys, followed by some other prayers. Indeed, vain repetition is characteristic of many false theologies. So that may be what's in view here. It's also possible that Jesus is forbidding something else. Many pagans in the ancient world tried to recite magical prayer formulas to get the gods to do what they wanted, like to curse their enemies. 
And we've recovered some of these scrolls, or archaeologists have, and usually these scrolls are just filled with gibberish noises. And they would say they think they're speaking angelic languages. And if that sounds familiar to you, it, it should, because this is very similar to what many charismatic Christians today practice, which they call speaking in tongues, but which in truth has nothing to do with the gift of tongues practiced by the early church. If you have questions about that, we preached on that last year in 1 Corinthians. Maybe that's what Jesus is forbidding here. A third possibility is that this word has nothing to do with stuttering, and it's just gets, it just gets at the idea of verbosity. As Jesus says in verse 8, they think they will be heard for their many words. So they pray long-winded, flowery prayers. Any of these three options may be what Jesus is forbidding. Maybe he's forbidding all of them. We can't be sure. But I think more than being concerned about what specific prayer technique Jesus is trying to forbid, I think if we look at verse 8, we get the, the sense that Jesus is, is dealing with something bigger than just this technique. He is responding to a pagan way of thinking about prayer generally. A way of thinking about prayer that sees God as distant and uninterested in our lives. That imagines that we have to get him interested in what we're doing by cajoling him through using many words. Or by using the right incantation or the right repetition. Friends, that is paganism. It's not Christian. Because believing, friends, God is not remote, He is not distant, and He is not un unconnected to our lives. God is our loving Father who is so closely connected to what is happening in our lives, He already knows what we need before we even ask Him. And friends, when we see God like this, as the Bible reveals Him to us, then we don't have to worry, oh, did I pray that prayer the right way? Did I... Did I use the right language? Did I get it in the right way? No, we don't have to worry about that. Because prayer is not about us trying to inform God or persuade God or manipulate God into giving us what we want. Friends, we need to let the Bible shape our view of God, which in turn will shape our view of prayer. And the Bible tells us God is a good and loving, involved Father who knows what is going on in our lives. And we need to see then that prayer is about us honestly communicating with our Father and bringing our lives and our problems and our will into alignment with His will. That's what prayer is about. And the application here is this, friends. We need to ditch any prayer practices that we might have picked up over the years from friends who seem spiritual or from other religions or whatever patterns that have popped into our head thinking, oh, I have to do it in this particular way or my prayer isn't going to be answered. No, friends. God is real, and if you know him through Jesus Christ, you have a personal relationship with him. You don't have to worry about these kind of formulaic approaches to prayer. So Jesus has told us how not to pray. Well, how then should we pray? That's our second point this morning. And here we're going to see that Jesus gives us the model prayer, which is often called the Lord's Prayer. Now, sometimes people have made an issue out of this title because this prayer contains a confession of sin. And, of course, Jesus had no sin to confess. And so people will say, well, this cannot be the Lord's Prayer because Jesus would not have prayed this prayer for himself. But whatever we call this prayer, this is the most famous model of prayer because it comes to us from Jesus himself. In fact, we find this example not only in Matthew 6. This same model is also repeated in Luke 11. There Jesus' disciples ask him, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus then responds by teaching them this prayer. Now, the setting in Luke 11 is quite different than the setting in Matthew 6. 
And that tells us that this model of prayer is something Jesus taught his disciples more than once, which tells us this was a model that Jesus found really, really useful in shaping his disciples' thinking about prayer. So this is a very important example for us, is it not? But I want you to understand up front that this is only an example. This is not a mantra or a chant or a magical formula. In fact, we see that in verse 9 when Jesus says, Pray then like this, or we might translate it, Pray in this way or in this manner. He's giving us a general pattern. He's not giving us a formula. He says, pray like this. He doesn't say, pray this, and then just give us some rote formula we're supposed to recite endlessly. I think it's ironic and tragic that this example, which is given in direct contrast to Jesus' warning about praying in a repetitious way, has in so many churches become the very thing Jesus warned against being repeatedly, repeated endlessly by people who aren't thinking about the words they're saying. Friends, that is not the purpose of the Lord's Prayer. The point here is for us to see the sort of things that are on Jesus' prayer agenda and bring our prayer lives into conformity with that agenda. And I'm not saying it's wrong for us to pray the Lord's Prayer, but if we're going to pray, we need to think about what we're saying and actually pray the words to God, not just think we're chanting something, okay? Now, the first thing on Jesus' agenda for prayer here is he's going to reshape our thinking about God. And he does this with the way he addresses God in verse 9. He says, Our Father in heaven. These are significant words because they speak very concisely and profoundly about the nature of God. They tell us God is transcendent. He is different than we are. He is in heaven. He's not a part of creation. He is not confined to physical reality. He is other. And yet, believing friends, he's also our father. He is loving and present and personally near to us, and he is concerned about us. Ephesians 1 says that God has predestined believers to adoption as sons. We are God's children. We are part of his family. And this is a totally different way of thinking about God than other religions have. The pagan religions then and now Ordinarily heap exalted titles upon their deities who they see as distant and unknowable and uncaring. They think through flattery they will get their prayers answered. You know, even Judaism rarely ever directly addressed God as Father. This occurs only once in the entire Old Testament in 1 Chronicles 29.10. But here Jesus gives his disciples a new way to think about the living God, that he is our Father. And he invites us to address the Father in this familial way. Now, this does not mean that we now have a green light to address God irreverently, any more than we should address our parents irreverently here on earth. Neither does this mean that there's never a time to use language in our prayers that reflects the grandeur and the glory of God. But Jesus wants us to see the living God as he is, as a loving and a caring Father who already knows what's going on with us who we can approach as children approaching a loving and involved parent. We don't have to clamor for his attention as peons begging for a scintilla of the attention of a distant tyrant. That is not our God. But who can legitimately say to God, you're my father? Jesus here teaches his disciples to do this. And so only those who belong to Jesus through the gospel can make this claim that God is our father. 
Now, last week, our brother Joshua preached to us from Acts 17. And if you remember that text, you'll remember that Paul did say of humanity generally that we are indeed his offspring. So in some sense, all of humanity does come from God. But the idea that Jesus is talking about here, the idea of being in a loving, familial relationship with God, that is not generally applicable to all of humanity. Outside of the gospel, people are children of wrath, according to Ephesians 2. They're not children of God. This relationship with God, which the New Testament calls adoption, this relationship that entitles one to see and approach God as our Father, which is characterized by us receiving His good gifts, of us having access to Him and receiving forgiveness from Him, of being co-heirs alongside Christ, this is only for believers, according to Ephesians 1 and Galatians 4. So only believers may truly approach God as our Father. And the early church understood this which is why they would not let unbelievers pray this prayer in their worship services, just as they would not let unbelievers take from the Lord's Supper, because this is a privilege only for believers. Now, I want to make one final point here before we move on to the petitions. Almost all of the prayers recorded in the New Testament are offered to God the Father, just as we find here. Now, I've heard some people claim that this means that it is wrong to pray to Jesus directly. However, in Acts 7.59, when Stephen is about to die, he prays, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And nothing in the context there indicates that this is improper. So I think ordinarily believers should address our prayers to the Father, but sometimes it seems they may be addressed to the Son. There are no examples in the Bible of people praying to the Holy Spirit. And so for that reason, I would counsel that we should not address our prayers to the Holy Spirit. All right, let's now turn to the Lord's Prayer itself. And in my reading, there are basically six petitions in the prayer, which are divided into two sections of three petitions each. The first set asks for God to advance His agenda in this world, and the second set of petitions talk about our needs. Okay? And as we go through these petitions, I want you to remember, Jesus is teaching us about the content of the prayers that we offer. So as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself, do I regularly pray about what Jesus is telling me I should be praying about here? My guess is what we're going to find is that our prayer lives excel in asking God to meet our own needs, but we probably don't pray very often about the items we find in the first half of this prayer, in which we ask God to advance His agenda in this world. But these requests make up half of the prayer. And the first half, so this isn't to be some afterthought, the prayers about God's agenda. This is to be a major part of our prayer lives. And if you get anything out of this sermon, I really hope that you'll meditate on this fact that we're to pray for God to work out His agenda in this world. So let's jump to the first petition we find. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 says, Hallowed be your name. Now, we may read this and think that this is actually part of the address. Our Father in heaven whose name is hallowed. We might think that, but that's actually not correct. The Greek grammar here is very clear. This is not a description of God. This is a request to God. God, let your name be hallowed. You say, well, what does that mean? The Greek verb is hagiatso, which means to be made holy. You might say, well, why do I need to pray for God's name to be made holy? Is God's name not already holy? And of course it is, right? In Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, we learn that the throne of God is surrounded by angels who endlessly praise God as holy, holy, holy. God is perfect in His holiness. He does not need to be made more holy. 
So why then are we to pray that God's name should be made holy? Well, I think the next petitions in this prayer shed some light on this, especially the phrase in verse 11, on earth as it is in heaven. See, the general idea that stands behind the first three petitions is this. What happens in heaven is not reflected on this earth. In heaven, God is worshipped and honored and revered as he ought to be. But on earth, is God reverenced? Is God honored? Unbelievers dishonor God all the time, right? Do we not see this in our world? God's word is held up to contempt. The person of God is maligned, or the three persons of God are maligned. You know, Netflix made a show like two years ago depicting Jesus as a comedic homosexual. God the Father and Jesus have been depicted as cartoon characters on TV for people to laugh at. The name Jesus Christ is most utterly, most, most commonly uttered profanely in our society, not reverentially. And friends, God and his people and his gospel are all the time exposed to derision and scorn, are we not? God is not reverenced as holy in this world. But believing, friends, Jesus tells us that we are to pray that that will change. We are to pray that God's name will be glorified in this world as it ought to be. Now, one day this will happen by force. Ezekiel 36, God says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. One day Philippians 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But more than just praying for that day when this happens by force, I think Jesus here is telling us to pray that in the here and now, before that day comes, we should pray that unbelieving people would worship and reverence God. Many commentators think the background to this petition comes from Isaiah 29, 22, which says, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. See, as God's people glorify and honor God through our lives, other people will see that, and they will glorify God too. Did we not see this idea earlier in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I think Jesus here is telling us to pray that God would be glorified in this world by unbelievers when they come to faith as a result of seeing his people, seeing that we live out our faith, and that leads them to, to convert, right? I think that's what's being, what we're being told to pray for here, and that is the first petition. We find the second petition in verse 10, which says, Your kingdom come. The idea of kingdom is probably the biggest theme in the Gospel of Matthew. And the idea is this. God reigns over all things, but our fallen world resists God's rule. And yet God will one day impose his dominion over this fallen world. And the kingdom of God is the collision. It is the outbreaking of God's heavenly rule here on earth. Now Matthew tells us that in one sense, the kingdom began 2,000 years ago when the king came, right? Because the king had come in birth, John the Baptist said in chapter 3, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said in chapter 4, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus will say in chapter 12, If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In one sense, the kingdom has begun to dawn. 
And yet, the New Testament also speaks often about the kingdom as something which is still to come. And so I think we should understand that God's kingdom has begun, but it has not yet come in its fullness. And here in the second petition of this prayer, Jesus tells his people to pray that the kingdom will come. Now, some people interpret this as a prayer for the kingdom to expand, like through the gospel. But that's not what Jesus says here. The verb he uses here is not about growth. It's about movement. So Jesus is not here talking about the organic growth of the kingdom through the spread of the gospel. This is a prayer for God to bring his kingdom in its fullness to this earth. And friends, the kingdom of God will come in its fullness only at Christ's second coming. This is not something that we bring in. This is something that he brings in. And when he does, the rebellion of this world will be crushed. And Jesus will exercise rule over this planet. But friends, the return of Jesus is not simply something that we should look forward to. It's something we should pray for. This is something the early church regularly prayed for when they said, Maranatha! Like in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Our Lord, come! In fact, we find the same idea among the final words of the Bible, Revelation 22, 20. Come, Lord Jesus! Friends, we are to long for and pray for Christ to return and impose His reign. And that is the second petition in the model prayer. Coming out of the third petition in verse 10, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus has taught us to pray that people here and now would begin to revere God as they should. He's also taught us to pray for God's promises concerning the future to come to pass. And here this third petition, I think, kind of brings both of these ideas together. May God's will be done on earth as in heaven. May all of God's good purposes for this world come to pass. May all of those things which he has declared will take place. May they culminate. May his good purposes for each of his people come to their fulfillment. May every moral command which God has given be fully obeyed. May every knee bow to Jesus. May this world resemble the heavenly court where God is endlessly adored and worshipped. May the rebellion and evil of this world end. I think all of those ideas are present in this petition. But friends, if we are to pray this prayer seriously, if our desire is truly to see God's will done in this world, then this necessarily is also a prayer for God's will to be done, not just on earth as in heaven, but in us as in heaven. For how can we truly desire to see God's will done around us if we don't want God's will to be done in us? So this prayer necessarily is also asking God to more closely conform us to His will for our lives, for us to more closely resemble His Son in obedience for His priorities to be our priorities, for His desires to be our desires. And this is how Jesus begins the model prayer, by revealing to us God's agenda to end this world's rebellion, to be glorified as He deserves, to see His will comprehensively carried out here as in His own heavenly throne room, and to see Christ reign forever and ever. And fully half of the model prayer urges us to pray about these matters. But now we come to the second half of the prayer, and here the focus changes. And here the prayers will probably look a little bit more familiar to us, because these prayers are about our needs. And we see this in the fourth petition commanded by Christ, verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Now this is the sort of thing I bet most of us are very used to praying about, I know I am, that God would take care of our immediate physical needs. 
In the most literal sense, this petition asks, God, please give me my next meal. Now, for most of us today, we're not worried about where our next meal is going to come from. Because most of us have jobs and good wages and paid vacation and sick leave. There is abundant food to be purchased everywhere. But in the ancient world of Jesus' day, that's not how it was. Most people got paid a very small amount every day. As one commentator points out, if you got sick for a few days and couldn't work, your family starved. There was no food bank. There was no unemployment relief. It was work or starvation. And people in that situation came to understand that all they had truly came from God's hand. And so they prayed that God would allow them to keep eating. Now, today, the affluence of our culture, I think, makes it pretty easy for us to forget just how dependent we truly are on God. We may imagine that our job or our salary or our benefits or our stock portfolio is where we get our money from or where we get our bread from. We may imagine that all we have comes from our unique blend of talent and personality and work ethic. That in essence, we bless ourselves by the labor of our hands. But friends, that's not so. Whatever we have in this life is ultimately a gift from God. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. It's all a gift, including whatever you eat for lunch today. So don't forget the true source of all that you have. And don't presume that you are the source of what you have, or that your stash of goods will last forever and sustain you apart from God's hand. Friends, don't presume that you'll always be able to just keep enjoying the good life that you have. I think that was one of the most important lessons of the last year. And one of the lessons that everybody seems to be very quick to forget. That our lifestyles of affluence are immensely fragile. Things are not as certain and solid as we imagine. We live and thrive not because of who sits in our government or because of our constitution or the strength of the dollar or anything like that. We live and thrive at the mercy of God alone. And what you have comes from God. And pray that God and His kindness would continue to meet your daily needs. For food and for other things too. Remember a few years ago hearing a guy get up and say, you should never pray about health issues. That's crazy. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Philippians 4 says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In every situation that may cause you anxiety, about every care that weighs on you, take it to the Lord in prayer. Whether it's about making ends meet, like we see in verse 11, or about health matters, pray. Philippians 2, Paul talks about praying for a man named Epaphroditus who was near to death. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says he prayed three times about a thorn in his own flesh, which was probably a health problem of some sort. So pray for your needs. Pray for the needs of others. The Lord's Prayer is a great model of prayer, but it's not comprehensive. One thing it doesn't talk about is intercession for other people. And yet we are to pray for others, are we not? Ephesians 6.18 says, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. We're to pray for each other. We're to pray about the other things Jesus directs us to pray here too. But we certainly are to pray for our daily bread. That's not wrong. But I also want you to see that in the end, that's only one-sixth of Jesus' prayer agenda here. We must strive to make our prayers reflect all of God's agenda for our prayer lives and not just only this petition, right? But we should commit our daily physical needs and concerns to God. 
and we don't need to be anxious. We're going to see later in chapter 6 and 7, Jesus will say a lot about how God is a good father, how God gives us what we need. And yes, our prayers may not always be answered the way we want them to be, but friends, the Bible says God will take care of you so you can trust your needs to Him. All right, you come now to the fifth petition, verse 12, which says, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus just told us to pray for our needs. And while we often think about our needs in terms of finances and health, there's another major area of need that we have, our need to address our sin. Because, friends, we have all failed to do what we ought to do, and we've all done what we ought not to have done. And in the final verse of chapter 5, Jesus tells us what God's call on our lives is. When He says, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But in this life, none of us will attain sinless perfection. In the same way, 1 John 2, 1 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you, that you may not sin. We are to war against our personal sin. But we all stumble in many ways. And even though John says, don't sin, in the next sentence he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Friends, God calls us to perfection, but he knows how frail we are. And so in his grace, he offers his people abundant mercy for our sin. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're to confess our sins. And as we do that, God faithfully forgives and cleanses not just the sins we confess, but all of our unrighteousness, it says. And that's what Jesus is talking about in this fifth petition, confessing our sins, asking God for forgiveness. You might say, well, why is that necessary? Are all my sins not forgiven because of Calvary 2,000 years ago? Of course they are. All of your sins were, if you're a believer, were atoned for at the cross before you ever committed a one of them. And yet, here in the model prayer, which shows what we should regularly be praying about, we find that Jesus tells us to regularly confess our sins, to regularly ask God for forgiveness. Why? Because as we go through this life and we fail, we need to acknowledge when we have dishonored God, and we need to address it with Him to point us back to the cross to keep us humble, to remind us of our need for God's grace, to remind us to war against our sin. So friends, although if you're a believer, yes, in positional sense, all your sins are forgiven, you should also keep short accounts with the Lord. When you sin, you should respond by addressing it quickly with God. Now here Jesus uses a metaphor to describe our sin. He says our sin is like debt. Humanity owes God our obedience, and when we fail to meet that obligation, we are in God's debt. And the debt we owe is massive. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable in which he again associates sin with debt. And he tells us there in this parable that if he was going to put a sum on the, the nature of this debt, it's an astronomical sum. It's something like over a billion dollars today. The debt we owe God is just enormous. And again, this is a metaphor. This isn't saying if we could get a billion dollars, we could buy God off. No. The idea is our sin puts us in an immensely and impossibly bad position before God that we and ourselves could never get out of. And the only way to escape that sort of uber-massive debt is to just have it forgiven. And the only one who can forgive that debt is the one that we owe. Only God can forgive our debt. And God only forgives us on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
And so it's right for us to take our sin to God and confess it to Him. But Jesus does not simply tell us to pray to, to God to forgive our sin. He tells us to seek God's forgiveness as we also forgive those who owe us. That is, those who have wronged us. Forgiveness, then, is not just something that we receive. It's also something that we give. We ask God, please discharge my debt, but we're also to discharge the debts that others owe us and no longer say, God, I demand justice for these wrongs. And this is another major theme in the Gospel of Matthew, that forgiven people forgive. Saw back in chapter 5, these words, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Believers who receive God's mercy are themselves to be characterized by showing mercy to others. Again, in chapter 18, in that parable we just talked about, this guy has his exorbitant debt forgiven by the king. And he turns around and mercilessly shakes down some poor servant that owes him a very small sum of money. And Jesus concludes this parable in a terrifying way. The king reinstates the man's exorbitant debt and turns him over to torturers to make satisfaction for this debt that could never be paid off. It's just a horrible picture. And then Jesus says this, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Believing friends, we who have been forgiven must likewise be characterized by granting forgiveness. In fact, Jesus expands on this point right after the model prayer in verse 14. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, there's a way of reading these verses that is profoundly wrong. There's a way to read this that makes it sound like forgiving others is a meritorious cause of us receiving forgiveness. Like this is a work that we can do to get, to get God's salvific favor. And that is totally contrary to the testimony of the New Testament. We don't earn our salvation by doing any deed, including forgiveness. All right, so what is Jesus saying here? He's saying forgiven people forgive, and those who will not forgive show that they are not forgiven. And why do I say that? Because a request that says to God, forgive me, but I'm not going to forgive someone else, says to God, my sin against you really isn't that bad. But that other person's sins against me are infinitely worse. They are unforgivable. It shows that we have no apprehension of the awfulness of our own sin, of the immensity of our own debt. It shows that our desire for forgiveness is non-real and shallow. It usurps God's seat as the judge and the only one who is ultimately offended in the commission of sin. It reveals that we have come to God seeking self-righteousness rather than in repentant humility. And friends, that prayer is a prayer God will not answer. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So yes, we are to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we do that, we are to forgive those who have sinned against us. And when we do that, we show ourselves to be true children of our Father, who out of His abundant grace and mercy lavished undeserved forgiveness on us. Did He not? All right, we come now to the last petition in this prayer in verse 13. As Jesus says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now really, this is a pair of petitions. Lead us not into temptation first, and then deliver us from evil. But these two ideas are very closely related, so we'll, we're going to treat them together. Now, Jesus initially tells us here to pray that God would not lead us into temptation. And these words have caused a lot of confusion over the years. 
because Jesus' word associate God's leading with people being tempted. And yet the Bible elsewhere tells us in James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James says that God is not evil. God does not entice people to commit evil. When we find ourselves tempted, we cannot blame God because God is not the tempter. And yet, Jesus' prayer here contemplates a relationship between the leading of God in people's lives and people winding up in situations of temptation. What are we to make of this? I think to understand the first part of verse 13, we have to think about how to reconcile two great truths that are both taught in the Bible. The first truth is the absolute sovereignty of God. Friends, God reigns over everything that happens in this world. God reigns over very big things. Daniel 2 says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. And God also rules over very small things. Matthew 10 says, Not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are numbered. The lifespan of a little bird. How many hairs are on your head? God is sovereign over these things. More than that, God is sovereign over every event that's ever happened in your life. Psalm 139 says, In your book were written for me every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. And not only does God know what will happen, but God has in an absolute sense decreed all that will ever occur. Isaiah 46.10, God says, I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, that I shall accomplish all my purpose. Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of His will. Friends, God is absolutely sovereign. And yet, while this is true, we must also maintain a second truth. That God is absolutely holy, perfect, righteous, and good. 1 John 1 says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So God is both sovereign and good. And friends, we must hold both of these truths tightly. In His sovereignty, God leads us. God has decreed our paths. And yet, in our lives, do we not sometimes encounter temptation? And yet, while God has decreed that sometimes we will encounter temptation, we've got to understand that in His goodness, God is never the one in that situation who is trying to entice us into evil. He allows us to face temptation, but the actual enticement always comes from a source other than God. Perhaps it comes from within. James 1.14 says, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Or perhaps temptation comes from outside of us. Think of Matthew 4, when Satan tempted Jesus. So in his sovereignty, God directs our paths. In his goodness, God never entices us to evil. And yet God does sovereignly allow us to face situations of temptation. More than that, the Greek word here translated temptation is periasmos. And periasmos doesn't just mean enticement to sin. It can also speak of trials and hardships. And so beyond just praying that we should not be put into situations of temptation, we can legitimately read this as Jesus saying, pray that God would spare you from facing terrible hardships in this life. So is that biblical? Absolutely. Read 1 Timothy 2. We should pray for a quiet and peaceful life. Pray that God would guard you from these terrible situations of temptation and horrible hardship. Sometimes this prayer may be answered and your path may be guarded. You won't even know it because you didn't run into those things. But sometimes it may be God's will that we should face tempting and testing. That's what happened to the Lord Jesus. And remember Matthew 4.1. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When Jesus went to the place of temptation, it was the Spirit who drove him there. God led Jesus right into that test. And friends, sometimes God will lead us into the place of testing too. Why? Deuteronomy 8 says God tested Israel in the wilderness for three reasons. And I think these are the same reasons he allows us to be tested. Number one, to humble us. To remind us of our need for God. Number two, to compel us to outwardly display what's really in our heart towards God. Number three, he says, I did it to do you good. Say, testing is good for me? Doesn't feel like it. Well, listen to James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's in the fire of hardship that our faith is refined and that we are sanctified. So friends, God is sovereign and He is good, but He does sometimes allow us to face hard times to work out His ultimate good purposes for our lives. And yet we are to pray that He would, in His kindness and mercy, guard us against such tests. But should you find yourself in testing, Jesus also teaches us to pray, deliver us from evil. Now in Greek, when this particular verb is used with this particular preposition, the object is almost always a person. So Jesus here is not telling us to pray for deliverance from evil generally. He is telling us to pray that God would deliver us from the evil one, that is Satan. Because 1 Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Believer, you have a real enemy who wants to take you out. John 8 says he was a murderer from the beginning. He is the father of lies. Satan and his demonic minions want to deceive you, to entice you to sin and destroy yourself, your family, your church, innocent people. Satan would love to see you dead. And he is immensely wise and powerful. Jude 9 says even the archangel Michael, one of the most powerful beings in all creation, when he is locked in conflict with Satan, only says to him, the Lord rebuke you. Satan's that powerful. And when he or one of his demons oppresses us or tempts us, friends, we need help. There are many Christians today who think they can arrogantly and presumptuously command demons. Jude 9 and 10 show that is totally folly. We are not to aggressively attack or presumptuously command mighty angels, even fallen ones. Instead, when we find ourselves in what Ephesians 6 calls the evil day, when our faith is under siege and trial or temptation, there is only one viable strategy. We are to pray. We are to appeal to God to deliver us because greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. And so, friends, we are to pray this prayer. And while we wait for God to deliver us, we are to wait in the armor of God. We are to stand firm, imitating the moral attributes of God. But our ultimate strategy in the worst moments of our lives is this. Pray for God to deliver you from the evil one. And that's how the model prayer ends. Now, many of you may expect to hear here at this point some final words, right? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. If you are in a more liturgical church, you're probably used to reciting that. Indeed, we find these words in the King James Version. Most modern translations omit these words because over the last 400 years, a large number of Greek manuscripts have been discovered that date to an earlier time than when the, King James, or the, the manuscripts used to, to compile the King James. And the earliest manuscripts do not include these words. So most scholars think these final words were not an original part of Matthew's gospel, and I agree with them. 
So where did they come from? Well, probably some Christians wanted to end this glorious prayer with a glorious doxology praising God. And they found a doxology in 1 Chronicles 29, 11, Just one verse after the only Old Testament passage that directly addresses God as Father. It's, it's not hard to see how they found this text. And this verse says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. And it seems that these early Christians added a summary of this doxology to the Lord's Prayer. But this traditional conclusion does not seem to have originally come from Christ's instruction on the mount. All right, so what should we take from this sermon today? I want you to ask yourself three questions. Number one, have you ever come to Jesus Christ? Because if not, your prayers are falling on deaf ears. God will not hear you. You need to come to Christ. Number two, if you're a believer, do you pray? It's just so easy to drift in the Christian life, is it not? Just kind of neglect prayer, go through life like an unbeliever, just kind of like looking around thinking this is all there is. And prayer, prayer is a hollow, nicety. No! Prayer is a vital spiritual tactic God gives us for this life. We harm ourselves when we fail to pray. And we harm our brothers and sisters in Christ too. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to persevere in prayer for one another. Believing friend, do you pray? If not, you need to. And one encouragement I would give you that you can take from this passage is that prayer is not some highly stylized and ritualized flowery thing. It's like talking to a parent. Talk to God about what's going on in your life and ask Him to conform your will to His. It's that simple. Believing friend, pray. But the last question I want to ask you today is this. For those of you who do regularly pray, does your prayer life resemble this prayer? Again, my guess is we know how to ask God for our daily bread and probably for a lot more than just our daily bread. And maybe we ask God to deliver us from trials, but do you confess your sins? Do you ask God to deliver you from temptation? In hard times, do you cry out to God to deliver you from the evil one? Now, what about those petitions we saw in the first half of this prayer? Half of this prayer is about God's agenda, about God being revered in this world, about God's kingdom coming, about God's will being done on this earth. Do, do you and I ever pray about these things? You know, I love our Wednesday prayer meetings, but I, feel, I, I fear that I have not led well in this regard because I think too often we just pray for our prayer list. And those are vital matters we should pray about. But we are also to pray about God's agenda. And so, friends, let us all be people who pray Jesus' way. And let us remember Colossians 4.2, which says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Let's pray.